Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host, Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Thea Alexander and Pip Murray. Thea is the founder of Young Foodies, a community platform supporting food and beverage startups as they try to get off the ground and achieve scale. They have helped brands including Weihei, Mallow and Marsh, Plenish, and Pip and Nut become market leaders in their niche. Pip is the founder of all-natural nut butter phenomenon Pip and Nut. Now stocked in most major retailers, Pip and Nut is the foremost UK nut butter brand. In combination, they give us a detailed expose on many of the key obstacles facing challenger food and drink companies in today's and tomorrow's markets. So without further ado, we bring you Thea Alexander and Pip Murray. Okay, we are serving up the food industry special today, and on the menu we have Thea Alexander, founder of Young Foodies, and Pip Murray, founder of Pip and Nut. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. I will try to resist any further puns um, once we're into the meat of this. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the aim of this conversation is to provide as much value to, uh, uh, I guess, emergent food, comp- food and drink startups, and um, we think the, com- the combination of the two of you will be excellent for that um but by way of entree um it would be good (laughs) (laughs) it would be be good to get a bit of background on each of you and how you came to start your respective companies so dear let's start with you yeah what what was your experience before young foodies and how did it lead into young foodies yeah so um so my background was i i once i graduated started my career in investment banking um so i went on a standard graduate training program there very quickly realized uh, it wasn't necessarily for me and I wanted to go and do something a bit more entrepreneurial. Um, Was working in a number of kind of tech startup-y things uh, before hearing about a role to start at a a really little popcorn brand called Propercorn. Mm. And this was probably six plus seven years ago, maybe. Mm. Um, So went in to start the operations and finance of the business. And I guess had no experience whatsoever in food and drink. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was kind of in charge. I, I described my role as being in charge of everything that no one else wanted to do. Right. Um, so I was doing all of the kind of insurance and legal and supply chain and all that. And uh, fast forward four years, left and started consulting for smaller brands than Propercorn in supply chain and operations and back office and things like that. And it was through that process that I realized, wow, there are so many startups in the market. There are just so many and they're all going through the same challenges all asking me the same questions and paying me to answer them and actually we should be working better together and bringing these guys together to be smarter about the way small businesses work and that's where Young Foodies came from. And so just a brief we'll get into Young Foodies later but as a brief introduction how would you how would you define the mission statement? It's about making small brands feel mighty so we exist to make little businesses, startups and scale-ups in the food and drink world feel like Unilever, feel like Nestle and and everything we do is about trying to give that to them. So what is it that Nestle has that a small business doesn't? How can we give it to them? And equally, what is that winning formula that's making small businesses do so incredibly well right now and how can we keep that to our advantage? Cool. And uh, and, and Pip? Um, So quite a different background to Thea. Um, So I 
studied anthropology at university and then from that decided that I wanted to work in the creative arts so spent a few years sort of navigating that world ended up at the science museum and was a theatre producer for them um so sorry they have a theatre producer yeah well they have this large like IMAX theatre which they converted into a stage that then they put on big productions which I helped put together like sort of dinosaur productions or yeah so I think horrible histories but <laughs> for science and then some slightly more grown-up stuff too okay. um so yeah I mean but my background didn't really necessarily relate at all which I think is quite common actually for food and yeah. drink founders into this FMCG world um and really my kind of link into food and drink and why I started up Pippin Nut was that well, I just really loved the product and I think that's what, um, it kind of got under my skin. I was doing lots of training at the time for different marathons. It'd be my post-running treats. I'd have peanut butter on toast every time. And just all the brands I picked up had palm oils. A lot of them had sugars. And um, for a product that, you know, is actually in a relatively like kind of not that great part of the supermarket, the brands on the shelf for me just didn't appeal to somebody of my age and kind of, I guess, interests and interest in health. Um, so that kind of led me into buying my own blender. I, and I'm a classic kitchen tabletop startup, which is I made the recipes in my kitchen initially. I trialed them at a market for three months, decided that there was enough kind of good positive feedback and people trying it at that small stage that I then scaled it up. And I launched the brand properly in January 2015. So we've been going for four years now. Um, and uh, Pippa Nuts in all the kind of major supermarkets now, so you'll find us in Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's, and lots of other nice independent stores as well. And on the table here as well, looking yeah. delicious. <laughs> well, it's quite messy. That's the one thing about nut butter; it gets absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So w when you were making it in your kitchen, yeah. Um, what, what is there any art to that, or do you just experiment away until you're you're happy with the? Yeah, the I mean, there's a, probably a little bit more science to it now that I've got. Um, bit more <laughs> insight but initially it was literally just like buy some nuts and put it in a blender try some different flavors and like I guess pull inspiration from different places that I thought um, would work and I think for me the early stage of recipe testing I think the most important thing is to get other people to try it because <laughs> I've got quite a sweet palate you know mm. that's so kind of what I what I like and I think it's something really great when you're at a really early stage just testing it amongst other people that don't know you that that will give you more honest feedback. And I think markets are actually a really great way of doing that because ultimately people are gonna buy it or not and they'll be tasting it in that moment and giving you like feedback regardless of whether or not you wanna hear it or not. Do you, so, not, do you not worry about um, confirmation bias? Like, there's a great book which talks about mm. how you should ask questions in Long a certain test. way. Yeah, that one, mm. that one, in order that the answer you get is as honest as, as possible. Because if you ask a question, uh, you, in such a way that someone automatically is saying yes to to agree with you. You have to be presumably quite careful yeah, of that. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why I actually hate focus groups and things like that, because I do think you get, if you're not doing it properly, you get that. But ultimately, if you're at a market store, they'll buy it or they don't. And that's, that's true. the kind that of confirmation for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you always know those people that linger around a store, try like 10, 10 times and then just like sidle away. Mm. That, that, it, that's feedback in itself, isn't it? That they never like, you didn't cinch them into buying it and why? So. And that, sorry, go on. I was going to say, is, is there um, an imposter syndrome when you're first out of the market store thinking, oh, I, I just made this in my kitchen. Mm. You're now buying into the brand of, that I'm selling you. Um, is there sort of any sort of anxiety over whether you're good enough to be out there selling stuff? Um, yeah, I think 
when you're at a market, so the market store phase for me was almost like consumer testing. So it wasn't necessarily like that for me was like the brand all neatly done as it is today. It was it was really rough and ready. But in terms of that imposter syndrome and feeling like um, small when you're at the start, yeah, I definitely think it happens. And I think, um, you know, you, you are kind of aspiring to be like a brand that you've seen on the shelf that may be eight, 10 years old, or you might look at proper corn and like mm. think, oh, I want to be like that now. And I think there's like this annoying kind of hunger and um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of want to be bigger than you really are. And I think you have to sometimes accept the stage that you're at and that you're not got the funds and the money to be as slick as some of the other startups that are like five years down the line. But yeah, I mean, I get, I still get imposter syndrome though. And I don't think that's something that really leaves you. And I'm sure you get a lot of people on this podcast who, who speak to that. Well, yeah, and you, it's how you keep trying. If you think you've completed the game, yeah. then like, you lose motivation and mm. presumably then your business does worse. Um, Thea, is that something that you've, um, the other companies that you've that you've worked with, um, they have a similar sort of story from testing at markets or, or similar? Yeah, broadly speaking, um, it's definitely a thing that the food and drink industry has more founders not from the food and drink industry than than from the food and drink industry. So you get a lot of people because we're all consumers. We all love food as because we're people. <laughs> we just make better nut butter than everyone else, or we make mm-hmm. better brownies, whatever it might be. And and the passionate entrepreneurial ones turn it into a product and try and sell it. So it's quite a unique industry in that respect. You don't get that in fintech or you know other industries like that. But there is a historically a well-trodden path. So small brands would historically sell in a market stall and then Can maybe- Can I just in- interject? Yeah. How do you get into a market stall? If for anybody listening, if they thought, I've got this great idea, I want to be in a market stall. Yeah, well, there's, I suppose there's several ways of doing it. The first is just, you know, look into markets that you want to be in. So say Mortby, Mortby Street Market, which is um, kind of London Bridge, Bermondsey way. Um, and you can reach out to them directly and get some space. You can also go down, I know a lot of brands that go and see the market stalls mm-hmm. and just ask if they can sell on there mm-hmm. um, and kind of do a deal with one of the market traders um, if it fits well. I don't know, how did you how did yeah, you do Yeah, pretty yours? much exactly that. You just speak to like, the market manager you on the day. 20, 20 quid a day or something. Gosh, remember, but yeah, it's something like that or it's a percentage of your sales, one or the other. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Assuming you're declaring the, the cash sales exactly. on the market. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, no, you don't do cash anymore. You have iZettle. Exactly. Yes. Did you have yeah. iZettle when you no, were doing it? No, it was a good old, like, little tin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that in itself has got to have made it a lot easier. Um, yeah. and, and also, iZettle outlets always look a little bit more uh, professional mm. and cater to people's sort of flippant spending habits because it's mm-hmm. easy to contact list something, I guess, when you're spending yeah. cash. always makes you think about it a bit more. Um, so, yeah, so, so people go through that, that process typically. Often they do, um, or they try and sell in another way so they might put it through family and friends and things like that then the first historically the first kind of step would be going into the likes of Selfridges or um, a premium outlet for a lot of the brands today Um, they're more willing to say yes generally speaking they're more willing to try new products and independent brands and things like that places like Selfridges Harvey Nichols etc what sort of traction do they expect at that point or do they just taste it drink it uh, they would just largely taste i mean they'd look at the numbers and they'd taste it and g- ask for some sort of indication of success but they do take more punts than you know a whatever tesco um it's not easy at all but it tends to be the starting those kinds of things will be the starting point or um 
independent lo- local cafes yeah. and shops and things like that. So brands would usually go to their local area, sell it to someone that they're friends with, put it on the shelf there, use that, um, those sales figures to go to a Selfridges or whatever, another kind of bigger place, um, get it on the shelf there, use those sales figures to get it onto the next shelf, which might be a Whole Foods or Planet Organic in our world. Um, use those figures to get into uh, an Ocado, then into Waitrose, then into Tesco and Sainsbury's and so on, historically. Mm. Um, the industry is changing so much now because there is so much competition for the smaller brands from retailers. Retailers are desperate to work with these brands and that means that whereas once upon a time there was that well-trodden path, now brands can be going in Sainsbury's as their first shop, which is quite mm. amazing. And that's never happened before. Well, I remember when I first worked in Angel Investment Network in 2010, um, seeing a first food and beverage company that came to us to raise money, and um, they were in Waitrose. Yeah. I was like, wow, like this is a <laughs> legitimate brand because I can see them in Waitrose and I can buy it, so it, it must be. Um, and then we saw another business plan come through, and it's like they were in Waitrose and Ocado, and then time and time again. So we started to identify that I think at that point in time their their buyers were just a little bit more forward thinking um and then yeah at the top of the tree were people like tesco who seemed to be very very difficult to to get traction with um and then to sort of almost defend against that people would go in you know they'd roll out across holland and barrett mm-hmm. get get some traction and some bargaining power to then go into the big supermarkets yeah. um what is changing the habits of these big supermarkets or just they need to be seen to be more innovative yeah so it's it's probably two things and and I suppose it's worth saying it's genuinely there is so much power in small brands at the moment I can't really even communicate it enough um, it's two things one is consumers want them more quite simply they would rather buy uh, from independent brands and that's universally acknowledged so millennial consumers shopping habits are very different to baby boomers um, there, there's a dodgy stat that's not nicely worded but it's something they're, they're four times less likely to buy from a blue chip than a baby boomer. So they really do want them, which means that when the brands are on the shelf, they get taken off the shelf, which is great. Um, and then there's the discounters movement, which mm. has been the biggest shift in the, the retail landscape in the UK. So Audi and Little came in um, and have stripped out all value in the shelves. Um, so businesses like Tesco and Sainsbury's like who are we anymore we're not the cheap big family shop um, Asda and Morrison's are still the kind of trolley shop uh, big Daz things and 24 packs of whatever Walker's crisps um, M&S is still premium Waitrose is still a premium family a little bit younger but Tesco and Sainsbury's like who are we anymore mm. um, and so they've decided well maybe we need a different range maybe we need to make ourselves different from um, Audi and Lidl by stocking things that they couldn't stock mm. um, and that's led to them saying yes to a lot more independent brands so it's not about my coke is cheaper than your coke it's about I've got Dalston Cola and mm-hmm. you don't mm. um, and so that's led to huge successes for smaller brands which means they literally they're born Sainsbury's reaches out to them and says I'll put you in 600 stores and, and overnight that happens which is insane Mm. bit exciting mm. and so Pippa in your case um, I think it was Selfridges was yeah Selfridges first. was our first customer and how, how, was, it, was that difficult um, no it wasn't really actually um, 
the buyer reached out to us. We'd done like a pop-up stall and she'd spotted it and took, took the product. And, and that was like kind of pre-revenue. So I hadn't really launched. It was in my kind of like what I call a minimal viable product stage mm. for me. Um, and then I delayed her for enough time before I had the brand as it nice, is today. Nice. So we launched into them uh, first. But then, yeah, I mean, the journey's much to what Thea just said, which was Whole Foods, Ocado, Holland and Barrett. But was Selfridges, was the traction that you got in Selfridges a springboard for pitching to th- it, those other ones? It's almost like, it's not so much the sales numbers. Yes, you need to sell. I think it's just more the halo effect of being in that store. So the fact that really? Selfridges have almost like a, approved you as Like social product. proof. Yeah, totally. And it's the same way that, you know, sometimes you use press, not purely just for marketing, but for almost like clout that you actually Credibility, are a yeah. viable brand. And I think as well, um, you know, it's it's just another thing to create momentum like anything else, like uh-huh. in terms of trying to get listings with, I mean, they are important and that's not to say that actually you, you do, you can sell decent amounts through it. I guess it's just the scale of what you're trying to achieve through your brand. So if you want a national brand, it's a good place to start to get that initial kind of um, premium um, kind of halo effect around your brand. Do they take the pound of flesh? And by flesh, I mean uh, their share of the, profits yeah i mean they have a premium consumer so that who's shopping in those stores so they they rightly can charge what they want for um and put the price as what they want to put the price at so they will make a margin that that meets their kind of business model i don't think they take a pound of flesh from their suppliers though okay partly because also they are working with a lot of independent suppliers i think they're quite mindful and actually so good to work with um so i mean and incredibly approachable they often will input at the stage where you're almost developing your product as well you can go to them with a concept and they can help advise as well i've known that happen before so yeah they're a great company to work with um and how good are they at giving you a fair crack at launch and making sure that that's positioned well that when you appear in selfridges um you are given a a decent chance at making some impact because obviously if you're stocked badly or in obscure mm. shelves, then you're not going to get the sales volumes that you would hope. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to how good you are at selling, because ultimately it's like how much hype you can create and how excited you can get them behind it. So, I mean, we had lots of like end of aisle spots in Selfridges, and like we did hundreds of samplings in the first year in Selfridges just to kind of support it and get people trying the product. And I think if you are putting in as much into that listing as possible, um, they'll also support you in, in terms of giving you better visibility, maybe building you into a stand um, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think, it, and then it also comes down to your brand. Like, is it hot at that moment? Is it on trend? And therefore, because I think Selfridges is really good at spotting trends. They're always just, they're always spotting things that are on the cusp and a cusp of like becoming mainstream and they get there first. And so, you know, they, I think, can give you a really good platform in that sense and therefore will want to kind of give you as much visibility to show that they've also got their finger on the pulse. Mm. So it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship, that one, I think, and incredibly different from larger retailers. I mean, how important is uh, building a, a social following in that in that creation of momentum? Mm, I think, um, yeah, really important. I think... Did, I mean, did you back in... Did, when did you, you started in 2015 in the markets yeah. and twenty. 16 you were selfishes so no we launched into selfishes in 2015 and it was our first stockist um yeah i think social media is just one of those i think it's one of the big assets of independent brands these days like if you can get it right and if Mm -hmm. you have a product that people want to talk about and follow um it is a real asset that you can kind of leverage to take to other retailers as well in terms of saying like you know we've got 100 because we've we've got i think just over a hundred thousand followers on instagram 
you know, every time we post about a new product about being in Sainsbury's as an example, we're talking to a large amount of people more than our competitors. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's an asset that is completely free. I mean, except for the content creation, we don't put any spend behind it. So I think that's one of the things that, things that has unlocked food and drink for independent brands because buyers actually recognize the fact that it's not just about doing big above the line activations and billboards and doing traditional media actually can be quite disruptive Mm. through social channels and PR as well and that authentic piece that you've got as a as an independent brand Mm. Um, yeah it's really important someone said the other day that maybe this is a complete lie but um, (laughs) Tesco if you've got more than I think 80,000 followers on Instagram then you get an automatic meeting Uh, fake news (laughs) why 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 would you that's what I heard surely that's a great a great springboard I mean yeah Make sure. It's I not. mean, it's like uh, the acting industry, the modelling industry. Yep, they now yep, yep. they're not going to take someone um, unless they have a following because it's you know it's sort of it's a mitigating factor in really? in the generating. But it's it's that generation of of um, preloading the sale. I mean, I think film companies are doing it as well. They're watching what the sales figures are and how to position their films. It's all quite sort of mm. self conscious in that respect. Uh, um, my 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 friend who who's an actor I won't name because he's not going to like me telling the story. Or she. You're giving cloud um, on, on our podcast. He he like programmed a load of bots to tweet um, about his character in a show which I won't name, <laughs> and it he was it was a relatively small part, and then the, apparently the casting people sit there and look at the the Twitter activity, hey. and so saw wow. that all these people going oh I love I love this character, and so in season season two or three or four whatever it was of whatever <laughs> show it was um, um, he or she had a much bigger part. Well, why aren't we doing wow. that for the startup microdose? Well, anyway, another to be, to be confirmed. Um, Thea, a question for you um, on these discussions. So from your position in Young Foodies, um, how much better is it when you have those warm introductions for people to go in and, and see the buyers? Social activity sort of aside. How much better is it? For so so somebody can have loads of Instagram followers, but if they if they know you and you know all the buyers by first name um, and have good relationships with them, how important is that for a young brand to be able to, to take your reputation yeah. and introduction into a, into a supermarket? Yeah, so we don't do any sort of introductions in supermarkets okay. as such. So um, that's largely something we let them do. What we do do is is the extent to which we get involved on the sales side is we train people in selling better or okay. speaking the buyer's language. And we work with buyers um, to do that. And we also act as almost a conduit to, to help our brands to speak the language of buyers and buying teams. So for example, yesterday I was with Asda all morning um, talking about w- how Asda could work better with smaller brands and equally understanding what they would want us to be saying to smaller brands to help the trading relationship become easier. But as a general, one of the biggest challenges for smaller brands is just getting through to buyers. Mm-hmm. It's a constant headache and it's it's not going away until something fundamental changes because it's a simple mathematical equation. You have five buyers in a shrinking buying team as well because overheads have been cut everywhere um, and an increasing number of brands uh, and something kind of has to give because you can't respond to 500 emails and 500 samples and all these kinds of things. So. It's one of the biggest challenges um, and definitely knowing the buyers beforehand or having relationships beforehand or even knowing which buyer to talk to. What's the right buyer for my category? They change all the time. So you might think you know someone, but six months later, it's Mm -hmm. a completely different person and you start, it's snakes and ladders, you start again. 
Um, so it yeah, could be a database business. Uh, I was talking to a PR guy yesterday, and there's this thing called Gorkana, mm. yeah, yeah, which yeah. is where they list all the the journalists for different industries. Um, LinkedIn, yeah. The Asda buyer I was speaking to yesterday said the challenge is they never update their LinkedIn's because mm. if they update them, people internally think they're going to leave. So they think they're preparing their CV. Yeah. So right. there's like oh a cultural God, wow. shift that uh, needs to happen, which is a really strange uh, thing to say, but um, yeah, don't know. Um, yeah, because I, I um, we, we we know that pain in a sort of different variety, and that we get a lot of entrepreneurial um, demand, and warm referrals go a long way to getting us to look at something quicker, um, and and to put to put them in touch with investors. So we're just trying to see how how much that can be engineered mm. um, to anybody who who listens. Um, but then I guess just networking within the food and beverage industry is important, speaking to other people, um, learning from the mistakes that people make, which mm. I'm sure are mm-hmm. uh, considerable. So Pip, actually on your way up from that, that first listing to Selfridges, um, what were the initial challenges once you do get the stock listings and, and any problems you've sort of started to face con- subsequently? Um, I think when you get into kind of the major retailers, so the big four, um, you suddenly realise that you're supporting a really big distribution. So we've got just under 30,000 stocking points, so places that our products wow. are found on store, on the shelf. And you've got really tight marketing budgets to get uh, to support those listings. So, And I think that's one of the things that often gets overlooked, um, uh, where you know, you've know you you've won the listing and it really is just the start of the journey. Like you, mm. it isn't like suddenly you've like solved the problem and you're you're now go- you're now a big success. You've got to prove that you've got good rate of sale and that you can progress it. Mm. And that's quite hard. Like when you've got tight budgets, because ultimately that's when you need to start making sure you've got all your different things lined up. Whether that's making sure your packaging looks great, your in-store presence is decent. You know all the things that line up. So I think firstly it's just making sure that people know about your brand in the speed that you're growing. And I think that's one of the things that's quite scary when you are a small brand and you maybe start listing with Sainsbury's, all of a sudden you're expected to perform at the same level as the competitors that you're, who are, are Unilever brands that have been there for years. Mm. And it, you know, it, that's where you obviously have to get your creative head on and you think about all the guerrilla tactics that you can go about doing. And there are loads of them. Um, you know, everything from like, you know, doing as many store checks as you possibly can and like rearranging the shelves manually yourself. Wow. To, like, okay. Um, okay. Like, so you can do all sorts <laughs> of stuff. Um, but it is tough. I think the other thing as well, when you're scaling quite quickly, particularly when you suddenly wing massive distribution, it's just the cash that you've got to spend on buying the stock in itself. So often in food and drink, you're buying things, sometimes it's upfront or sometimes it's on sort of payment terms that aren't that great. And then basically your cash flow cycle is not great because you're being paid after you have to pay for the stock. So you'll have huge buy-ins when you launch into say 600 stores. And that could cost you, you know, upwards of like a hundred grand that you've got to shell out. And if you're not necessarily cash flow positive, that can be really, really tough. And that's where you've got to make sure you're watching your numbers really tightly because you can have some of the most amazing opportunities, but you just don't have the cash to buy the stock and it's soul destroying. Um, Is that where you consider raising money? And that's when, and that's where cash comes into like needing to raise equity. And I think obviously lots of different ways you can raise money whether through your banks or whatever but typically when you're at early stage yeah equity mm-hmm. is like the best best place and it, um, obviously when you're 
going to raise money and the you're saying oh I've got a massive listing and I've got to be I'm going into Tesco like it's a great place to be in so yeah. it's not like a necessarily a thing you should be feel bad about it's just the fact that you're scaling quickly and you're having to catch up is that something the supermarket be privy to in terms of they go look we've got a massive order we want to roll it out mm. Do, are they assuming that you can fulfill that or are you going we'll do our best and then you try and sort it out yeah uh we tend to be the people that brands call when they promise something to a supermarket that they can't do. So what happens <laughs> okay. is they will say, yeah, ab- absolutely, we can do that. That's no so problem. We'll do it next yes. week. Yeah, we'll, okay. absolutely, yes. No mention of any risk or issues. Uh-huh. And then you leave and you're like, fuck. <laughs> 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 um, and then we get a call. Um, so yeah, no, definitely you wouldn't bring the, the supermarkets in. People, are, it's, it's amazing the power of the supermarkets because you basically have four, Asda, Morrison's, Tesco and Sainsbury's that represent such a large proportion of, is, they basically are the gateway to consumers. Hmm. Um, and you don't want to piss them off and you don't want them to think that you come with any risk. So you just need to deal with it. But then if you have to go and equity raise, on the story that you're, you're about to generate these huge listings then is there not a two and two together where they figure you are raising money to to meet that need? Because I guess the basic assumption would be you've gone into Selfridges, most of the money is gonna be plowed back into the business. How are you gonna have the cash to meet an order, let's say five, 10 times larger than historically was done? Um, that they wouldn't start think, oh, we've just seen Pippa Nut on, on Crowdcube raising <laughs> half a million pounds. I, could that be because they're trying to like fill stock? Maybe, yeah. Right. I, I, to be honest, I think the buyers don't really. They're so busy. They're such busy. They're just constantly in meetings, and and as far as they're concerned, they have a conversation. If the if the numbers add up and they're excited about you, then they will ask. You know, they'll give you a listing. It's not immediate, so you would usually kind of you might hear about it now, and there might be a three month mm-hmm. lead time or even longer. Um, so you would then try and work out how you're going to fulfill it, and sometimes that's about. You know, I need a new factory. I need a new. Um, I need money. I need a new factory. I need a new product that I've never that's never existed before. You know, there's a lot of kind of theoretical conversations that happen in the mm. buying stage that you're expected to execute on. So, I mean, actually, that is a good question. Um, sourcing and and sorting out manufacturing for you um, with peanut butter. So mm-hmm. you've made it in your, your kitchen. You needed to scale up. Um, can we try some after this? Oh, well, yeah, we, yeah, we 100% can. Um, but yeah, so your, your first manufacturer, um, how did you find them? What what happened? How do you actually get them to create the product that you want, then match it to the packaging? So I'll start that as a first question. Yeah. So I think you can find, I mean, Thea is an expert at this, but um, you can find factories in all sorts of different ways. I actually found our first, first factory via a Google search, which is like quite unheard of, but also mm-hmm. lots of people do do it. Um, but, you know, great ways of finding factories or partners is, is you know, going to lots of big food fairs and trade fairs. Like you've got them all over the all over Europe that you can go and like meet people face to face. Um, you can also use your contacts. You can meet people, like young foodies who have an amazing database of, um, you know, different factories. And it is sometimes the most boring thing to do because you literally go down these long lists of like potential factories and you just call them up one by one. And and generally, a lot of them will say, pretty much all of them will say no, they can't do it. And then you always ask, do you know anyone else that can? Mm. And you just do this kind of ri- like like kind of rabbit hopping or whatever the saying is um, to the next one. Um, I think the thing with factories though is that you just so assume that when you're small that everyone wants to work with you and you're like, I've got an amazing idea, great product, everyone's gonna just like 
want to like bend over backwards to make it work and actually they, they just don't they, they want serious volume and when I mean serious volume they want like a Tesco own label massive mass market products that just run down the line so as soon as you come with complications like oh I want a chocolate orange almond butter please they're like oh, I just want to do standard peanut butter day in day out <laughs> fuck off with your fancy <laughs> peanut exactly. butter it's like no um so you kind of have to twist their arms and sell them the dream and like really like get them on how exciting this journey is going to be to do it go and you know create this amazing brand together because like potentially there's huge upside for them but but as with that comes the, as exactly as yeah. Yeah. who had the set have still have the same uh factory that in devon mm. that he had from the start and now wow. and you it's know one yeah. they're, they're the biggest client by far yeah now. yeah they've grown with the business and it's been tremendous um i think it's the same with though, like investors you you have to bring people on the journey like and that comes down to how good you are as a as a founder or you know about selling them what it is you're trying to achieve because you have ambitions to grow to a national mm -hmm. supermarket brand so it's as much a sales pitch in those meetings as it is like you thinking that they're you're the customer in fact like you're like selling yourself to them yeah. to be like we're gonna have this some great amazing kind of product and journey like come come on board it's, it's gonna be great over here i've got a vision of, of vats and cauldrons uh -huh. is is it that do you, do you just have alchemy big, peanut butter yeah alchemy. and you just have these big big like industrial sized pots and, and that's how it's being made or how you make your first batch or you try yeah. stuff i mean it's it's big scale manufacturing so I mean it's not quite big pots of people stirring them you're doing a elves. stirring there's elves stirring <laughs> them so sprinkling like the sugar the salt in the poor elven um, underclass is being exploited <laughs> but I mean you have to try and translate your product that you made in a kitchen into a large mass large factory and it is difficult to get the kind of texture and flavor and everything working in the same way and that process can take upwards of I think it with the, the first products that we were making, it took me eight months to find the factory initially because mm -hmm. of various different allergens are really difficult to find in like people that can work with peanuts. And then it took a further, I think, a year to get the products right. So we were testing on the factories, trying to get the time with them and so on. So it's a long process. Mm. Uh, it definitely can be quicker than that, but mine took a while. And, and location, is that pretty important? Yeah, I mean, I think it is important. Um, it will make distribution cheaper if you're located in the UK if that's possible but Europe is still there obviously challenges of Brexit making life hard for people that are manufacturing in Europe um, but you know you shouldn't it's with nobody's really certain about what's going to happen it's really frustrating not being able to have clarity on that because there are some great factories also in Europe um, so yeah lo location is important um, but you'll be surprised how broad and wide people go mm. and is there sort of coaching from young foodies that goes on around both uh, relationships with manufacturers but also manufacturing itself definitely yeah um, a big part of what we do we know that manufacturing is probably the biggest headache for small brands um, what the first one is kind of finding the manufacturers and then setting them up to align with your quality and then keeping that consistency of quality. Um, we work with them a lot. We help brands find manufacturers. We help brands get set up properly and we advise on some of the things that I think are really easy to be missed around um, how to set your contract up right and, and, and the ongoing quality agreement and things like that. For me, it's the most important thing for a business. Mm. Um, basic things like owning your IP so many brands will go a long time not really owning the IP or the recipes with the with the manufacturer and even just knowing that that's a conversation to be had um, is really important so we do a lot of telling people kind of 
you know, you don't know what you don't know and we try and just mm. tell them what they don't know and then they can work it out themselves. And just quickly, what, what's your business model? So our business model is um, providing services for brands. So um, we have a community and the people in the community pay a small subscription fee and that's basically to kind of cover the cost of the tech. Yeah. Um, but we listen to what the community are asking for and their challenges and we provide solutions to them and all of the solutions people pay for. So yeah. um, if a brand is struggling with their logistics and they want to outsource their logistics to us, which they can do, they pay us to be their logistics team. Um, if they want to hire someone and they want to, to ask us to hire them for them, they pay us to do that. Mm-hmm. But so, and by, by community, do you, is it like a digital network or are you actually fostering uh, links between the different food brands that you work with so that they can learn from each other as well as from, from it's, you guys? It's more that than anything else. Right. So we actually, we have two communities now. We have um, one called Wire Flight, which is for baby brands. Mm. So they're largely pre-launch or really early stage at the kind of Whole Foods, Planet Organic stage. And then we have our scale-up community, which is much more vetted. Um, it's it's brands like Pippin Up, really exciting brands, really changing their categories with proven traction, mm-hmm. who have a very different caliber of conversation. And so, you know, for example, someone posted this morning saying, does anyone know anything about the packaging legislation in um, the Netherlands and then other people chip in and give some feedback. So, um, and, and is that like a WhatsApp group or? No, uh, it's online. online it's it's right. like a, a website that okay. we have. Um, mm. But then we also do face-to-face events probably every fortnight, just getting people around the room talking about boring things that need to be spoken about like forecasting or, um, How's boots for you? Uh, I've you seen I've well seen food boots. entrepreneurs with each other. They love it, and yeah. they do talk about end of aisle and category so disruption. So boring for anyone not in it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so nice this idea of people freely sharing information because it, it actually just reminded me of um, We Farm, which is a, a client that you've worked on, mm-hmm. um, and I think we were trying to get them on the podcast. Anyway, so it's basically allows farmers in Kenya and Ethiopia and Africa because they all have they don't have computers but they have phones, okay. so it allows them to text. And it sends this text um, to the platform, which is then broadcast to anyone who's on that network saying, you know, what pesticides do I need to use for my uh, uh, coffee bean or avocado to to not die? What soil pH? Stuff that they have no access to otherwise. And then all these people can just submit. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's there's lots of reproducible errors. So we're trying to do this in a broader sense with um, startups in general. We see so many of them. Mm. that we just think they're all making a lot of mistakes and in doing so they're, they're wasting time they're wasting investors money we should take it upon ourselves to take that overview mm. position to eliminate anything that's, that's unnecessary mm. and I think when we look through food projects that there is a degree of standardization particularly actually in restaurant industries we see mm. that the first site will often do a very similar amount of turnover um, the operational costs will be broadly the same so you start to see patterns and then you think well if that is the 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 pattern that's appearing how can you help them sort of with what's going to be a set figure or when they're paying too much for rent or how they can meet people quicker or hire better staff so they're not firing people and wasting more time it's that's um, it and and I think what we what I found when I was consulting was so many of the questions I was being asked were were pretty basic that the answers were exactly the same you could google them but no one trusts google Mm. um not with your business and so if if someone says yeah how do barcodes work you can google it they're really basic, um, but they'd rather hear it from someone that they know is relevant to the UK, 
they know knows what they're talking about and that that tiny bit of validation is the difference mm. between six hours on google and not i think it's um, comes back to that like what you said earlier the what you don't know you don't know because mm. it's like the fear that you maybe you didn't yeah. see the fifth thing down on a google search rank yeah. actually that was the really important article. yeah and and that's i mean when when young foodies first started um i was really my poor uh, boyfriend would every day i would come home with a new business idea because i was working on loads of different <laughs> ideas and the the one that ca- that led to young foodies was that google is just so flawed these days because no one has cleaned it mm. um and you know you can you're looking for business information and you click on something and it's a forum from 2007 do you trust it or do you not at what point does someone clear that and theoretically seo should do that but it doesn't work as it should um and i think we i speak to so many startup founders who just spend so long going down complete rabbit holes Mm. um and spent wasting days and days on things that there is an answer and now we've just put it into a blog and they can find the answer Mm -hmm. on wireflight or on on the website so we try and cover off those frequently asked questions it's collective intelligence you're forming and you're and you're learning from the best so by pip having been in industry for a long time you can export Mm -hmm. um success yeah whereas google just just gives the information from presumably to make it more addictive for you to spend more time e.g reddit Mm. um Uh, what was the question I was just about to I'd ask? I'd like to eat some peanut butter. You'd like to eat some peanut yeah. butter? Well, yeah. let, let's... But I'll offer it to the ladies first. Um, <laughs> just in case Pip hasn't had enough peanut some? butter in one no, in my I've lifetime. No, I've never tried this flavour now. So we've got, uh, on the right, the darker it's one is coconut. the coconut yeah. al- and almond. And That's then right. crunchy maple <laughs> peanut butter is on the left. Actually... And there's a, there should be a knife. And and, and it, it's quite... Um, peanut butter is quite... Say, um, just mind yourself. Like. It's sticky in your <laughs> mouth. Yeah. So we can edit that out. If if need be, or leave it in right. for it. Well, leave it in glossy, for effect. So you'll you'll be all right. <laughs> Ugh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> oh, I had it for breakfast. Um, <laughs> what, one thing I'm going to ask while Ollie's chomping away: um, mm. these nascent brands um, often look fantastic. There's some really good brand job on them. You get these lovely pitch decks, and, and they are good at selling the dream. Um, what are the problems you're often seeing them make? Should I go first? Um, I think the problems that you're often finding. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. Put it all in. No, that's, that's okay. Oh, God. I think it's just um, often, particularly when you're raising funds, you haven't necessarily proven. <laughs> I all trumping away. You're like Sorry. product market fit, and I guess it. I think it really only gets to when you really hit some of the mainstream supermarkets that you really understand whether you have the cut through. And so when you start selling in something like Tesco, that's really understanding. So often when you see forecasts or like what people are projecting they're gonna do in the next five years, they actually haven't validated like whether or not their product really works. So All I can hear in my ears sorry. is- Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad, like, it's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's gotta be authentic. It's t- terrible listening to us, but- um, I love the coconut one. They're really good. So like decadent. Yeah, it's really good. Unlike Thea, who's trashing your business right now. <laughs> I think this is delicious. Um, so, so, so do you think sometimes they're just creating um, categories that don't exist? Yeah, or, or just haven't necessarily worked out whether or not their brand genuinely works. And I think like you have to start investing in actually understanding who's buying your products and buying a bit of data to really start to understand a little bit more about what you're doing. So I think um, there's a bit of a phase where you're at that early stage in the whole foods, planet organic phase where you're kind of just running at things, not really sure really why people are buying your products and what they like about your brand. 
And I think there comes to a stage where you start to hit like the likes of Sainsbury's Tesco where you're expected to know. And that's when you need to start investing. And so I think it's more just, and we've learned this, it's like once you start to have information, i.e. data mm. and customer insight, you start to understand what you need to change and adapt to really unlock the growth. But where do you get your data from? If it's all sold, I mean, you do sell online, you said before, but if it's all sold through yeah, I stockists. Mean, this is the annoying thing is that you have to buy the data. So you buy sort of things. Your own data yeah, is kind it's of it's so annoying. And it is really expensive. You I'm have not to buy you, your own data. So expensive. But it's not that it's, it's, it's not really their data. Mm. It's you can get your own online. Or you can get dips, you can get, but you don't yeah. get them. You don't get like level. Bit. You can understand your rate of sale by store, by, by like. You know, you can get some detail, but you don't understand the reasons why. Mm. So um, things like club card data you can buy, and that's what tells you like where your shopper is, what they look like, well, not what they look like, you know, <laughs> um, what they Very might buy, <laughs> yeah, age and so on, this demographics. Is, this is Cambridge Analytica, <laughs> sold yeah. through Facebook. It's really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, for me, the biggest challenge for, um, for smaller brands is, um, I think it comes down to what the brands want to do with so there are so many startups in food and drink i can't communicate that well enough. we see there a are, lot of there, them yeah there are I, I think there was something like sixty-eight thousand new businesses registered in food and drink last year um and wow that's yeah insane. although that does include you're gonna have a that, great yeah. one of that that's, that's a fantastic that does business include model some um kind of that includes restaurants and other parts of food and drink but um but a lot of them don't intend to be the next Pip and Nut. They are just Johnny who lives in Brighton and makes really delicious cookies that he wants to sell to his local, whatever, farm shop. Um, and they don't, they're never going to buy, sorry, Johnny in Bristol, Brighton, <laughs> yeah. whatever I said. Um, but uh, they're never, their ambitions are just different. The reasons they've built the business are very different. Whereas for some someone like you, you're constantly striving for more and more and more. So... The, the direction of your business is, is different. And I think if you're going for more and more and more going to become the next Bear Nibbles or Vitacoco, whatever it might be, you need to be thinking about mass market. Mm. Um, and so many businesses to your, very similar to what you're saying, just do not think mass market. They don't think outside the London bubble. And I see it mm. so often where I understand the logic. I understand why they've made what they've made. And the USPs make sense, but is, Rob in Hull Tesco Extra. Don't insult Rob as well as. Sorry, Rob. Sorry, Johnny. Don't worry, Rob. Worry about the poor Elven underclass. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Who are making all these things? Um, it's a conspiracy. If Rob in Hull Tesco Extra isn't ever going to buy it, then who who it is and how does that scale become nationwide? And if it doesn't, then then that's fine. But that needs to be considered in your strategy and your mm -hmm. your um, growth plans. But at, w at what point is that into looking at market trends before you even launch a product? Or mm. is that yeah. is it that and then having the production capacity and I, I don't really know what mass, mass market entails. So so um, if you are a so we had it. In fact, I'm not going to say well, I'll say it, whatever. We can take it out if you don't a, want to. A um, product that was, it was a um, seaweed, it was ice with um, Israeli seaweed inside. Um, mm -hmm. For for, which, for what purpose? For, um, so two things. One is for drinks and two is for smoothie making. So smoothie making, I could kind of see this, the link if seaweeds, if you blend it into your smoothie, that kind of thing. Um, but no, it was sit sitting in the ice category as just like a nicer ice. 
Wait, so, so sorry, they, they put the seaweed into the ice blocks and then they sell you the ice blocks. I'd be like, why don't you get your own ice? We won't freeze anything because that's going to cost us a fortune. Well, then send you the seaweed. So, oh, so there's, there's, there's questions. Yeah, so, so this, this didn't, yeah. That's the but, point of the example, isn't it? But, yeah. they, they, do you know what? They would sell in certain markets, in certain, they would sell, but they will never sell mass market. So I, you, Rob in Hull Tesco Extra is probably not going to buy them. So what is the the limit on that business? Which is and and that means there is a limit and that's fine. But it's just about acknowledging there's a limit when you go to value the business and raise money and all that kind of stuff. I've got a question. How damaging do you think the comparison culture is in the food and beverage? I I notice a lot of people. To create relevance, you're right. I'm choking a little bit. That's <laughs> because of my greed. I've eaten about half a plate right now. Um, but they, they, they just quickly to try and give somebody an example. Say we are innocent for yeah. X. Yeah. We are, and and then one innocent doesn't feel like it's the most cutting edge food. Bread. They, they've got big. They've got big. They're they're different now. And two, it just feels like um, lazy. Like you just sometimes to think, well, it isn't that similar. But you're just saying it to create a bit of hype. Yeah, and I, I actually, I think that's such a good point because I don't, I find it really frustrating because, like, it, the food and drink world, like Thea said right at the start of the podcast, is just totally different from when Instant started twenty years ago. So your expectations of what your brand's going to do, it's just you just will not follow the same path. And regardless, there is no blueprint, there is no like formula that if you do X, that then this will be Y. Um, there's so many I think particularly with brands like any brand this isn't relevant for food and drink at all but across the board um, it's like a science and an art isn't it like you can't always work out why something has worked but people I think for food and drink really think there is a formula Mm. and therefore make those references to will be the next proper corn or the next uh, Vita Coco Um, and I just think it's really unhealthy and I think sometimes and and I would put Pippin out sometimes we do this as well is that you end up looking at other brands and you stop actually innovating because you're so much in an echo chamber that you don't think about how you want to do things different and it can be quite difficult the community is amazing but it also means that you can rep- like end up yeah. copying each other quite a lot and that's not not so great mm. and on on future gazing i'm gonna put you both on the spot now um so for both your companies where are you where, what, what, what how do you envisage the future in the medium long term should i go first yeah um uh, well, for Pippin Nut, I mean, we feel that we're really just at the start of the journey. Although mm. we've got a great um, distribution already, um, it's really like, our brand awareness is so low. Um, so really, we're focusing on becoming like you know the UK's favourite nut butter brand. Like we want to really you know be in every single cover as many covers as possible. Mm. Um, also looking at how we can diversify out of our core product range, our nut butters. Um, it's very so interesting g- you describe it as nut butter and, yeah. t- and carefully not as peanut butter. Well, I know I have a funny a weird thing about this, which mm. is because we're not, and like often people reference us as a peanut butter mm. brand. We are both. Um, but anyway, um, but yeah, so I think for, for me, it's about being like nationally recognized and, and truly nationally recognized. Um, and overseas is something that we've started to dabble in a little bit, but it's still very much a small part of our business. And how do you um, reinvent... Um, the product how do you spin out new product lines without diluting your core brand yeah so what, what do you feel like you have the remit in the next three to five years to, to do I think for me it's like we always start right at the core when we look at innovation so it's like really like how do you kind of make different formats different sizes that's the first start and then you think about flavors maybe how can you change up flavors and push the category harder and maybe innovate with something more exciting 
um, you know, for, we do a lot of kind of looking at what the category needs as a whole. So is mum being given a product that she is, do, can mum find a product in this category and can we serve her better? Um, as an example and then for us it's like how do we creep out further from there which is like well how can we introduce nut butter into other products um so then i think well is that a drink or is it a snack or is it a popcorn it's not um and all these different things (laughs) (laughs) and um and then we creep out further and it might be nuts okay what can we do in nuts and i think you have to start or maybe that would be the (laughs) furthest way so i think you kind of start really at your core and then you creep out and try and keep because Basically, the further you step away from where you started, the harder it is for people to understand, you know, what you stand for. Yeah. And I think it's probably, to your point earlier, like, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes, and we've certainly made it at points, is innovating too far away from where you started and you end up, um, it just, it's so hard to get the read across. Um, you know, really focus on selling more of your core range rather than necessarily, like, you know, spraying and praying everywhere, because it really Can you give an work. example? Um, I mean, I think for us, like we've launched a range of almond milks and they've been, you know, a really hard product for us to get out there. It's really competitive. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, when we've got a really successful core product range, um, it can be difficult to kind of focus on that as well as trying to grow what's really working hard. So, and also for our consumers, they're having to make quite a big step over to our almond milk. So it's, you know, it's just a learning from my side, which is, actually like innovation is really difficult to land really well mm-hmm. um but if you've got something working really well already just focus on how you can make that even better and i think that's something really beautiful about doing one thing really really well and that, i mean i'm nicked that from someone else but i really believe in it from your perspective similar look in the future of, of young foodies um for you um i guess you've got a lot of we're really young we're, yeah. we we've been going um for 18 months and we're still working out really what we do um we know why we do it but we're still working out what we do so i think the next kind of the medium term next couple of years is all about really bedding in the best ways to deliver on our promise to our brands um first and foremost we want to feel really proud of all the brands in our network and know that the, the thing I'm most proud of right now is that our brands together are turning over 100 million pounds and growing 70% year on year. And I want that to grow and grow and grow. Wow. Um, and that 70% figure, I don't want that ever to dilute. So how do we make sure that that re- retains its its um, power? Com- compound interest at 70% will get large very yeah. quickly. <laughs> um, so yeah, the main, the main focus is just delivering on our promises as much as possible and building our team um, we're now a team of nine, building it quite a lot to um, to deliver on those. Um, a quick question for you. Um, I don't think this is core business model, but we raised money for Wolf and Badger once, and they did a great job of providing store frontage basically for independent designers. Mm. Um, is it ever a dream in your mind of giving like a young foodies food court where you can bring in young brands to be tried and sort of like a reinvention of the old school uh, market? For consumers? Yeah. Um, we would rather, I, I've, I have thought about that, and I think I would rather support the retailers with the best real estate in the country to get it right for the brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so we work really closely with them, we'll continue to, to try and understand how they can give the best real estate and the best presence to the brands that are challenging the industry. Um, and I'd rather invest my efforts into that, to be uh, honest. And by real that. estate, you mean like positioning in the shelves? Yeah. And, and what is the best positioning? 
Well, anywhere that well anywhere in line with what the shoppers are doing really so um, in a snack for example you want to be ideally in the meal deal space where people are grabbing snacks they know to look for snacks um, in the aisle uh, not in the aisle in the um, the queue of the temptation the, the queue point. yeah um, the valley of temptation <laughs> yeah so um, that's where a lot of impulse happens uh, and ideally multiple spots in in the store so people have as much opportunity to see you and then um, what are called the gondola ends, which is at the end of the aisle, you have the, the bay mm. that's kind of facing that way. Um, they're amazing space as well. So the more space in store, the better. What you don't want is, um, you know, a snack brand, for example, being in the free from section only mm. um, because they just don't have great presence. So the more that the shopper sees you, the more they're likely to buy you, um, the more, the better you do. Mm. Um, and so maybe a negative side of things what what causes brands to get delisted or removed or shoved into those crappy spots um so they're all quite different i would say mm. often um delisted what what pippa said around um not giving it as much love or not recognizing how much you need to do as a brand in store um Everything is looked at on kind of what's called rate of sale. So how much you sell when you're on that, that shelf um, in an average store in an average week. And if you sell less than the person next to you or the other people that want that space, they're going to sweat the shelf harder. So you probably are going to come out and they'll, they'll go in. And that ignores everything that's a reality of being in the real world. So when um, that guy who's stacking the shelves in Hull Tesco Extra forgets to take you from the back of the, the, the storeroom mm. and put you on the shelf, the shelf is empty, so you can't sweat the shelf. Um, and there are loads of realities of life that brands are expected to support. Um, and I think for our brands, that's one of the biggest challenges because that means you've got to be in Hull Tesco Extra or speaking to Hull Tesco yep. Extra to tell them that. Um, I don't even know if there is a Hull Tesco Extra. <laughs> but... Um, but the guy's like, what shelves am I meant to stack? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't find I the bloody supermarket. Um, well, we saw that with a, a brand that we had. Um, I won't name them because we, we, that's the policy right today. Um, but I went to Holland and Barrett on a really hot, sunny day, and they did ice cream that was free from lots of stuff. Um, uh, small company. But they were just so, so hidden. And nobody in the store was like, it's a really hot day. If I just stood on Putney High Street and mm. kind of lure people in on the promise of ice cream that's good for them and, mm. and is emitting all, all these things. Uh, it's not way hate, by the way, just to be clear, because we've got them coming on. Oh, do you? We do, Damien. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. That's exciting. Um, but I just thought, well, the store's not working for you at this point in time, and you're missing out on probably, you can't get a better chance to sell ice cream than mm. when the weather's mm. scorching hot. Um, so I don't know how. I, I think I think there's a lot to be said about shelf position. Um, so for us, it's like well, anyone really, but eye level is key. Mm. Um, having the right range in store, you'll be surprised how much buyers won't pick your best selling selling SKUs um, or products um, for various different reasons. It might be that they want you to have some more innovation in their category. So they bring your worst selling or worst performing lines in store and then they expect you to perform at the same level. And I think it's like you have to be so strict with yourself about making sure that when you're in front of Tesco and they're saying, well, we'll give you two SKUs and um, we only want your least performing lines um, because they're more innovative and they don't duplicate what's already there walking away from it because yeah. you won't perform and you will be delisted and so yeah it's just there's no point so you have to make sure that you push hard for what 
and and push them hard as a buyer to say like no we need these to build our brand so we need our best performing two lines and we need some brand building stuff from nice flavors whatever and that's how we sell and i think you know that's when sometimes brands will go for growth and win 800 stores and actually it'd be better if they were in 150 because they can support 150 properly so yeah there's doing things fast and dirty and then there's doing things like well uh, is yeah so important but it, it's yeah brutal uh, in those supermarkets i'm not gonna lie like they are expecting you to perform and you have to deliver um and i think one thing we haven't actually spoken a huge about though is the opportunity of online though and i would say that for a lot of independent brands there's some um, like amazon is absolutely amazing like the growth you can achieve through um even just their pl- platform is insane and i do think we do obviously do focus very much on those big big four but there are lots of kind of channels which are out there which aren't big supermarkets and that could be selling through into offices like this one that we're in and being a supplier and actually you can balance your business and the risk around your business by having much more many more channels than just the ones that you see in those supermarkets and I think that's I'm, I'm so curious to see how like the landscape evolves over the next few years because I think it's going to I think it's going to change a lot. I think lights of Amazon are actually really quite powerful and they're looking at all sorts of like things from Morrison's to, to buying them and they've just bought Whole Foods and, mm. and things like that. It's, it's really interesting sector to be working in at the moment. Yeah, well, let, let's dig into that a bit and talk yeah. a bit more generally. I think we've done quite well on the specifics um, mm. of supermarket shelves mm. and, and things, which is all very helpful. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about um, sustainability because obviously it's mm. it's you know, a hot topic at the moment with... Um, the end of the world coming, um, and, and, and and with that, um, I'll have some more peanut butter. The, the, the world's gonna <laughs> yeah. end. And with that, the death of all, all, of all the fish. Yes. Um, obviously, plastic is, in a way, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful product that allows us to mm. store food really, really well. Um, but it has, you know, it's a sort of poison chalice. Yeah. So, how do you think the landscape there is changing? Not necessarily specific to your brands, but just in general. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we talk about almost daily in our office at the moment. Obviously, we're in plastic. Um, it is recycled PET, but it is plastic. Um, and it's such a, like, multifaceted um, challenge. Um, but what I think, firstly, I think is amazing is that how much this has been able to escalate and change has been able to happen in such a short space of time because it, it has been needed to be addressed. Like, single-use plastic should not exist in our stores and we shouldn't be buying straws and things like that which are disposable and, and not needed. Um, however, it's, it is difficult in terms of, um, you know, I think it's a quite a complex problem in the sense that sometimes distributing plastic is actually more environmentally friendly than distributing other things. So for instance, it's much heavier to distribute glass and therefore actually that has a higher carbon footprint Mm -hmm. versus plastic. So I think what's interesting is that often, at the moment plastic is so relevant and I think we are listening to it and we're making changes actually along our supply chain. Um, However, it isn't just about plastic, it's about the wider carbon footprint. And recently obviously the the target of um, the temperature of the, the earth going to, it was initially at max of 2%, 2 degrees, and now yeah. it's gone down to 1.5, and actually doing that could have massive impacts on our planet. Um, actually looking at your whole supply chain and how efficient mm. you are, it, it should be more on the agenda. Obviously that's hugely complicated to communicate to consumers. So plastic is one thing that we can address, but it is also more complicated than just 
glass versus plastic or plastic versus other you know biodegradable materials it's well, of course, for, I mean, so for, complicated. For, yeah, for instance, just to sort of um, expand on how complex these things are, um, nuts are quite um, energy intensive to grow, right? Yeah. But we had Bill Yao from Wee Forest, mm. um, and they're basically planting trees because trees produce clouds, and if you um, plant trees in the right places, the clouds um, can have a, a, a you know really positive effect on mitigating global warming. Mm. Um, but he says the problem with that is that people cut down trees because yeah. in those areas, the trees are really valuable. So what do you do? You make the trees more valuable than the charcoal. Yeah. And so nut trees, having the permaculture in that community means that the trees are more valued for what they can produce. And so rather than just saying, oh, nut trees are bad for the environment because of the, the, you know, the amount of water they need, yeah. you can say, look, this is stopping people from cutting down trees and from burning fossil fuels. Yeah. And so I don't know, I don't know how that balances out, but it's just a way of showing how complicated it is, as, yeah. as you point out. And I think actually, I think looking at that full, like from end to end is so mm. important. And it is really difficult as a small brand to get your head above the parapet and have influence. I think particularly when you're looking at your full supply chain, we're a very small part of what is purchasing, you know, almonds and peanuts around the around the world. That's not to say you can't have a positive impact, um, but in you know, you, I think that's where sort of collectives can actually have a big impact in terms of making sure that you can make positive changes. But um, I do think it is like absolutely on brands to be responsible for the impact they're having on the planet. And I think there is rightly so a demand from shoppers and consumers for us to be transparent about that. And we get asked a lot about, you know, plastic as well on our social channels. Um, and I think the best thing you can do is explain exactly what you're doing and how you're going to about doing it because changes do also take a little bit of time to implement. And if you're really like open and transparent, it's like any human relationship, if you're open and honest, people will kind of trust you and think, yeah. all right, they're decent, they're doing something, they're mm -hmm. moving forwards. So the moment you start like breaking down like comms and just do the kind of blanket, sorry, email this address and we'll um, try and take it offline as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. If you're actually quite open, I think people res really respect that. And yeah. I always rate brands that do that as well. Because it's difficult, because you're, if you're being squeezed in margins by mm. everywhere, and it also is unclear who should be footing the bill for the environmental cost, um, yeah. whether supermarkets need to start. Remember, mm. it's the elves. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I just, I just think it, it, as you said, it's very complicated. If the, uh, if there's crop failure that affects the, the spot price of the basic ingredients you're using in the yeah. foodstuffs, we're in loads of trouble. Like by yeah. the time that starts becoming yeah. an issue, it's, it's going to be really too late. Mm. Um, so Thea, do you, are you seeing enough from the big brands, e.g., the Unilever, to try and sort the supply chain issue? Um, and what are you doing with smaller brands to try and sort of help with packaging issues and the sustainable? Yeah, things. so there's there's it's become it's the number one topic this year. Food waste was number one topic topic last year, um, and it's getting a lot of a lot of attention both by retailers. And the second it gets attention from retailers, then it hits all the suppliers because the retailers are telling them what they need to do. It's a big part of Tesco's strategy um, at the moment. It's how in I think they've got a by twenty twenty five they don't want any plastic, um, so they've got a serious agenda for it. Um, PepsiCo, uh, I don't know if you saw the Walkers thing. Um, so yeah. people were posting, someone on social media set, uh, set up a campaign which is post your Walkers crisps bags back to them. So you write the Walkers address on the Walkers crisp bag and put it in the post box 
and they were getting just millions of bags wow. of crisps through the Royal Mail and the Royal Mail was like, please stop. Um, <laughs> but as a result, they've uh, PepsiCo have come out and committed to reducing plastic and coming up with alternative routes. That it's There's so many stakeholders in this though. Um, you know, it's the recycling plants. Mm-hmm. If we can't, you know, a bag of crisps, for example, we can't recycle, but the Netherlands can. There's something in the infrastructure that needs to change to support that. Um, and we're, so we're seeing people trying to make small changes. I think there is low-hanging fruit, um, excuse the pun, like removing uh, kind of plastic from bananas. You can do that quite easily, but then there's other things that actually put food waste at risk um, mm. or other have other longer-term impacts mm. that are, are a lot harder to just switch on. They can affect the margin or they can make things not, not feasible anymore. Well, I guess storing your, your product, if, if it mm. compromises the shelf life of your yeah, product, exactly. then it becomes untenable almost to, well, to yeah, serve it. I was speaking to somebody who has a um, yeah like a ready meal and they it's in plastic and they said that if they put it into more biodegradable paper packaging, it reduces the shelf life by four days, which means that the food waste that hits the supply chain yeah. is actually more impacts the planet from a carbon footprint point of view and it's obviously um co2 emissions and they're worse in terms of like the environmental mm. it's all impact. a trade-off isn't yeah. it like there's there's um there's the practicalities of how innovation at the moment has moved in line with what shoppers and um the media wants us to be doing and the truth is you can't do it affordably at the moment you can't buy the quantities we need to buy affordably without wiping out your entire margin um, or creating a product that's unaffordable for the consumer or for the shopper. So it, it there's a big bit of work that needs to be done before this is feasible and someone is going to need to foot the bill if we are expected to just switch to something that's twice or three times the cost. Now, um, we're having conversations. We actually recently sent a, a um, questionnaire out to our brands just to ask what packaging they're buying and what experience they've had with buying environmental packaging um, just to understand, is there an opportunity in 250 brands to, you know, is there a similar spec we can find mm. to buy it together? Um, but we're still waiting for the outcome of that. But that could be a really interesting way. And are the packaging happen. companies doing enough? Are they concerned as well? Because they've kind of got people over a barrel, presumably. It's like if they choose to innovate slowly, uh, you're still buying their packaging up until the point where they either figure it out um, mm. Or maybe a huge brand puts a lot of pressure onto them, but are they are they being quite responsive? In they are. They're all they're all innovating all the time. Um, it's just trying to. It depends on the product. Like in um, PET, for example, there's there's which is um, just plastic, basic pure plastic. Um, it's it's slightly. If you've got a bottle of water, it's a lot easier to innovate with that than it would be mm. something that needs barrier properties so it needs to be protected from the oxygen if it needs to be protected from the oxygen like a ready meal you there's so much work to be done to make that compound work for that purpose Mm. Um, and that comes with cost and time and you know going through all the food safety legislation to make sure it's fit for to be sold to consumers and be eaten from you know it all takes time it's but what this whole campaign has done is made it move much more quickly than it has ever moved which is an amazing thing and it means that in the next kind of couple of years we'll definitely see some amazing innovations coming out um, and and big changes already coming through the Mm. the major retailers which is good so instead another question um on the supply chain um are the manufacturers doing more 
to help improve efficiencies? Um, do they get new machinery? Can they afford and have the extra revenue to reinvest into more efficient machinery and practices? Well, I mean, some manufacturers are better set up to be more efficient. The irony of a lot of these things is that it's actually more efficient for them if they are probably more environmentally friendly and more. And if there's less waste coming out, then it means that they're actually going to be more profitable in that sense. So I think <laughs> in a very crude, horrible way, they, they probably are incentivized to do, be doing this work. And we found that a lot of factories are naturally doing a lot of work on these kind of how do we more, be more efficient? How do we be more automated? Make sure we treat our... And it's not just about the um, environment, it's also about workers, like making sure that the factory are employing um, you know, people that are on decent wages and, and being treated well and have breaks and stuff like that is just as important. Um, so actually, we find that people are really on the front foot. And I think, again, it, basically these things just trickle down. If, if their c- customers are asking for them to be more... So, for instance, we're working on becoming a B Corp. Mm-hmm. And that requires us to find, you know, really work with our suppliers to make sure that they're being really environmentally friendly, reducing their carbon um, emissions and things like that. Um, you know, if you become more demanding as a customer, and so long as you're a meaningful customer for them, they will be incentivized to do the work because also it it benefits them in lots of different ways. So I think it really depends on who you're working with, and there probably are some horrible factories out there. But if you, I think from our perspective, when we think about working with different factories now, we actually, as part of our supplier surveys, make sure we ask them questions about, well, what is their environmental footprint what waste how do they get rid of um waste that is coming out their factory do they do it in environmentally responsible ways do they pay their staff minimum wage do and all those sorts of things which actually to be honest if you didn't care about those things you could quite easily work with lots of factories Mm. that don't aren't responsible so i think again it comes back to as a brand you have to have that responsibility if you're expecting people to affect change you can drive that through being a bit more demanding um B Corp, I think, is a great initiative. I think you worked on it with Propicon, um, but I think it's really starting to gain momentum in the UK. And I don't do you maybe know? I don't know anything about it. Um, just... Basically, B Corp is like about they they talk about it like the, the 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 triple bottom line, which is like people essentially making it so that profits don't come before um, you know your environment and your people. So you have a number of targets you have to hit um, in in order to become a B Corp and you can put the B Corp logo on your packaging and essentially it represents that you're an environmentally and also socially responsible company. Is it the same as profit with purpose? Essentially, yeah. It is. Exactly okay. the same. Um, so and yeah, and it's it's pretty rigorous. Like it's and and it really makes us particularly a small brand like ours like hold ourselves accountable to being measurable on everything from yeah our, our our waste to you know how much we pay our employees and what's the difference between the top pair and the bottom pair and you know how many women and di- what's the diversity of the people in our company and and actually I, I love it. I think it's so brilliant and it gives you an amazing framework as well to be like what's really important yeah. to be making sure you're working on because. Um, that whole thing around like you know building a great culture within your business that like, you can have loads of great perks but you might not be paying people well and I think you know yeah. what really matters is is that um, I don't know if you've got points on I no B Corp is, is is super exciting everyone is starting to become more aware of it in the in the UK it's it was big in America mm. um, and it's only recently or fairly recently come over here and it's it's kind of trickling through the food and drink world which is great um, but how how do they evaluate it? Because so we're doing more and more impact related stuff, 
Um, and we we sort of we use the UNSDGs as an evaluative framework, but that still seems to me. I mean, it's good, but it still seems to me kind of loose when you're trying to define how impactful a company is. Yeah. So how so does B Corp? They've got how many areas? Like there's four key areas. Four. Um, so they will be. Li- they'll. They have. There's like a handbook. It's really good. You should. It, it's. Um, it's by Ryan Honeymoon mm-hmm. and the B Corp handbook, and it's got kind of all these questions. So it will say like the employees section, and it will ask these key questions like, um, what's the difference in pay between your most expensive and least expensive? Um, and and it's basically an audit, and you work your way through it, and then you get scored um, out of. Well, you have to hit 80, and there are, I think, something like 120 or 160 points, I can't remember. So you get a certain number of points based on these this list of criteria that they've created. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's this... It was started by these two guys in America that had a shoe brand, I think, mm-hmm. like a basketball shoe. Um, and they decided they wanted to um, embed it in their, embed using business as a force for good yeah. in the way they run their business. And so it sits in your articles. Um, it becomes completely ingrained in who you are as a business. So whoever takes it on afterwards, like Patagonia is a B Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever takes it on afterwards will have to work to these standards of, of using business force for good. Um, let's do the quick fire. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Now, what we want to do is try and uh, leverage a bit of your background experience to see first um, if there are any books relevant to the food and beverage industry uh, or entrepreneurial existence that you guys have found very useful. Um, I will start with you first. Pip, because Theo, I can see you looking up to to (laughs) think of something first. Oh, you know what? There are surprisingly few books on specifically food and drink. Um, That's not hugely helpful. Obviously, there are ones. Pip and Murray forthcoming. Yeah. 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 I've signed my book till no I haven't um, uh, there is Innocent Founders have written a book which is quite a nice one to read I've also read um, Green and Black's kind of autobiography also quite a nice read um, uh, I would say there are less kind of business owners writing the kind of um, well personally one of my favourite books is The Hard Things About Hard Things so mm-hmm. we haven't got those sorts of books coming out but more around the story about the, ra- the mm. brands I do read a lot of more businessy books, things like, so Four Hour Work Week completely changed my life. Mm. Um, and I know you probably get that every single day, but it, the, the way of thinking around being smarter with your time and being ruthless with your, with your time um, has completely changed the way I work. Uh, so I would always say that's had the biggest impact on me. Um, but I would, yeah, there's, there's millions that start with why also has changed the way I think fundamentally, which is, which is really great. I think so much of what I've learned has not been through books. It's just from meeting people for coffee. Um, and it means that you hear from the horse's mouth all the truths and all the kind of, it's exactly that, all the things that they wouldn't necessarily want to publish. Mm-hmm. But you get so much from that. Um, so that's probably my favorite medium. Um, and we've gone through future predictions. So, I mean, I guess the, the one thing to focus on now um, is really if anybody could do anything listening to this podcast to help either of you two out, um, what would that be? Um, and I guess we'll go same order, Pippa, first. Um, Eat more peanut butter. Well, yeah, <laughs> head on over butter. to <laughs> any of our retailers. Butter, yeah, not just <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, I think one of the things that I find hardest is um, all the leadership elements of it. Um, speaking to Thea, I think we were speaking about this before, about how um, you kind of end up having a team of people who 
I had no kind of management experience, let alone leadership experience. And suddenly you're finding yourself like having to lead a team. So for me, that's kind of the thing that's always on my kind of like things to develop and I'm, I'm still learning it. So for me, it'd be like support in that. Like I'd love to hear more from other female founders as well mm. in terms of how they establish themselves as, as leaders. Um, so that would probably be the thing that I'd ask for. Um, because our mission is completely around supporting small brands, I would love to just hear from as many as possible that are going through challenges. We, what would make us feel proud is, is knowing that we've supported brands to become what they become. So the more we li- we hear from, the more we can support. Um, so any big challenges, I would love to hear about, and anything new on the horizon that is causing people headaches, I would love to hear about first, so we can try and help. Perfect. Well, we wish you both the best of luck with it. Thanks. Um, and thank, thank you for coming you on. For thank you for having us. Very much. Cheers. 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 If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, oliored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.